Well, good morning. As Pastor Adam said, I'm Stanzi, and I'm not normally one of your teaching pastors here. Um, and so maybe you're thinking, like, who's this chick? Why isn't Adam up here this week? We want to see his his zany antics. We really love that. Or what about that uh, that old guy? Um, what's his name? Oh, Al. Oh my gosh, he's so he's so wise. We love it when he teaches. Or what about Stephen? I love his self-depreciating humor and 80s references. Oh, it's just the best. Well, no, I'm not one of those guys. But you know, the first person that Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah was a woman. And the woman at the well went out to her village and proclaimed the good news and became the very first evangelist. The people that stayed with Jesus at the foot of the cross were women. The very first people that got to see the resurrected Christ and preach the good news to others were Joanna, Salome, Mary Magdalene, Mary, wife of Clopas, Mary, mother of James, and Mary, mother of Jesus. I'm not a Mary, but I'm very grateful to join women throughout the centuries whose lives have been transformed and changed by the gospel. And I've had the opportunity to proclaim it to others. If I can get my computer back working again. Today I'm talking about um, a topic that affects both men and women. And that's suffering. Yes, we're going to be talking about a light topic today. You're so glad you came. Congratulations. Um, and maybe you're listening today and you're new to the faith. But if you ever open a Bible, you'll find that the ideas of suffering, sacrifice, and salvation are closely linked in the Bible. The very symbol of our faith is a cross. And a cross is a torture device, an execution device. And yet it is also our symbol of salvation and love. But what does this mean for us? Why do we need to talk about suffering? Isn't this kind of a downer, and doesn't God just, like, want us to be happy? Well, C.S. Lewis said, I'm not sure God wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to love and to be loved. But we are like children, thinking our toys will make us happy, and the whole world is our nursery. Something must drive us out of that nursery and into the lives of others, and that something is suffering. Most Americans live a pretty sh in a pretty sheltered nursery compared to much of the rest of the world, and we think that our toys will make us happy. But when real, harsh, violent pain and loss enters our lives, we're completely unprepared. We don't know how to handle it. You know, for the last <clears throat> 11 or 12 years, I've spent um, playing music at the bedside of cancer patients in hospitals. And I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of patients facing this harsh diagnosis. And you know which group of people tends to have the hardest time dealing with their diagnosis? It's people who call themselves Christians. And what's their main reaction? It's shock. How could this be happening to me? Did I do something wrong? Doesn't God love me? If he did, how can this, he let this happen? And the shattering of their illusion that they thought was reality is even more painful than the diagnosis itself. 
Over the next few weeks, you're, we're going to be hearing from Adam about this framework that we have in the gospel about answering some of life's toughest questions. And I believe that the gospel is the strongest framework we have to answer this question of suffering. But if we never talk about it, how can we build a foundation that can withstand the violent shaking that we experience in this life? Now, before I continue, I want to give a little trigger warning because we are going to be talking about some heavy topics. So if at any point you start to feel overwhelmed, I give you complete permission to tune out, step away from the live stream, and come back to it when you have more capacity. But when you do come back to this, I promise that when we lean in these, to these topics together, there is a hope that not even the grave can touch. So what does the Bible say about suffering? Big question, and I cannot talk, cover it in a half hour, but we are going to focus on 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 18. <clears throat> we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not given to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last for long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we see now, rather we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Dear Father, we can't see the truth and the light of your glory unless you remove the veil from our eyes. And Father, I pray that you would go before and that you would remove the veil, that we would see your truth and experience it in deeper and deeper parts of our hearts today. May your spirit fill this place. Amen. So before we really get into this, I want to give you a little bit of context about Corinthians. Second um, Corinthians was written by Paul, who was a student of Jesus, and Jesus sent him out to go and preach the gospel to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles. And so he went to the city of Corinth, and he actually spent a year and a half there helping to establish a church, and he spent most of the rest of his life supporting this church through letters. We know that he wrote at least four letters, but we only had records of two, um, and that's what we know as First and Second Corinthians. And the Corinthian church actually faced some of the same struggles that the American church faces. 
Corinth was one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world, and the church there struggled with preacher worship, tribalism, internal strife, and materialism. And Paul said things in 2 Corinthians that challenged their worldview. And he said things in 2 Corinthians that continue to challenge our worldview and challenge our misconceptions that we might have around suffering. So today we're going to be talking about what Paul didn't say and then look at what Paul did say about this topic. So first, Paul did not say, our lives will be great always when you follow Jesus. At the beginning of that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11, he says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So, Clearly, Paul, who is arguably one of the greatest Christians in human history, was not immune to suffering. In fact, all but one of the apostles that followed Jesus died pretty horrific deaths in the pursuit of spreading the gospel for their faith. And even today, there are devout Christians in Afghanistan that are being hunted and killed because of their faith. So why do we think that we're immune from things all that bad happening to us. This overly optimistic view of the world affects how we react to suffering and also affects how we talk to others who are suffering. You know, in all of my years of working in the hospital and even during my own experience with cancer as a teenager, I've heard all of the overly optimistic Christianese platitudes. Everything happens for a reason. Just pray, and everything will be okay. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Let go and let God, and one of my favorites, God will never give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've said this to someone yourself, thinking that it was sound biblical encouragement. Hate to burst your bubble, but that's actually not in the Bible. It is actually a misquote of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where he says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. This passage goes on to say that God will always give us a way out when we're facing temptation. It does not refer to troubles in our lives. In fact, Paul, earlier in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 8 and 9, he said, We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. In his grace... God will allow things to enter your life that are more than you can handle so that you can learn that there is nothing that he cannot handle. And that's why Paul can say we are pressed on every side but not crushed. It's not because Paul is so good or so strong. It is because God is so good. 
Job is another figure in the Bible who was well acquainted with suffering and had friends who came to try to comfort him and used some of these platitudes, and he had some very choice words to say in the matter. In Job 13, 4 through 6 and 12, he said, As for you, you smear me with lies. As physicians, you are worthless quacks. If only you could be silent. That's the wisest thing you could do. Listen to my charge. Pay attention to my arguments. Your platitudes are as valuable as ashes. Your defense is as fragile as a clay pot. There was a woman I worked with um, several years ago, and I worked with her a lot during her um, first round of treatment with cancer. And the last time I saw her, she had just, uh, her cancer had just come back and she'd relapsed. And I went into her room and, um, you know, asked if she wanted music. And she was normally very cheery and happy, but this day she just was really heavy. And she said, you know, I don't really want music today, but could you just sit and talk with me? And so I sat down and she shared that she actually worked for a church And when she found out about her her relapse, she tried to share the fears that she had. She was a single mom. What what was going to happen to her son if something happened to her? What, what What would happen if she didn't make it through this time? And the response was, oh, don't think about that. You beat cancer once. You can beat it again. Just pray and everything will be okay. God will never give you more than you can handle. And she said that all that made her feel was alone. All that communicated was that no one was willing to sit with her as she was going through the valley of the shadow of death because they were unwilling to admit that bad things do happen. I sat and talked with her, well, really just listened for about two hours. And when I finished, when, we, when she was all talked out, I just offered to pray for her. And when I finished, she just thanked me for listening and that she felt less alone. She died two days later. Bad things do happen. And I'm very grateful that I got to be there in the last few days of her life so that she was not alone in that time. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, Paul says, All praise to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. I think a lot of people are afraid of visiting people when they're sick or when they've experienced loss because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And you might think after hearing the story that, Yes, that indeed, I should not go into those situations because I will say the wrong thing. But let me tell you a secret. There is nothing you can say that is going to change the situation. There is nothing that you can say that will make it all better. But just by listening and sitting and being willing to be present in that circumstance, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with them, that does make a difference. And maybe one of those reasons we're so uncomfortable with other people's pain is because we have not yet let God comfort those deep and pained parts of our hearts. Because only when we experience that comfort can we truly offer that godly comfort to others. 
And then when we are willing to sacrifice, to enter into the discomfort of others and make ourselves uncomfortable, we share in the death of Christ and his life becomes more evident in our bodies. And what did Jesus do? He drew near the brokenhearted. He didn't offer platitudes. He sat with them, loved them, served them, and heals them. And he calls us to put off a naive worldview and draw near the brokenhearted. All right. Okay, Stonzi. Okay, fine. So bad things happen. We get it. We get it. Thank you. But maybe on the other side of this, you have a pessimistic view of suffering. And Paul does not say that suffering is meaningless. One of the main issues that people have with Christianity is the problem of suffering. If God is good, then how can he allow so much suffering? There is suffering in the world, so God is either not good or he does not exist. And this is a completely understandable reaction to the anguish in our world. And I will not even attempt to give a comprehensive answer to this question in five minutes. If you really want to dive deep and you have questions around this topic, please see me after. I'm happy to share some books that have been written on this topic. But I will address one shaky assumption that is embedded in this question. So if I ask the question, if God is good, how can he allow suffering? I assume that if God has a good reason, then I would be able to see it and understand it. Since I can't think of a reason, then there must not be one. You know, my one-year-old cannot understand why I took a power cord out of his hand yesterday. And he cried and was angry and sad because he can't understand the dangers in physics of electricity. And I'm willing to make my son sad to keep him from danger. Now, there's a 33-year age difference between me and my son, which is plenty of life experience, but there is an infinite age difference between me and God. Is it possible that he sees things that I do not see? Is it possible that he is willing to bear witness to the sadness of his beloved child to keep me from eternal dangers? Now, I want to be very careful here because on the other side of this is almost an obsessive searching for meaning. And a lot of times we use that to rush over the pain of an experience because if we could at least figure out the meaning of it, then maybe it wouldn't hurt so bad. But I will tell you that healing comes from allowing suffering to break open our hearts so that God's light can enter in. Unspeakable evil does exist in the world. The enemy is out there to steal, kill, and destroy And when we encounter evil, it feels senseless. It feels horrific. It revolts our very beings because inside every human being, eternity is in our hearts. We know that what we see isn't right, and you may blame God for that. But in admitting that something is fundamentally wrong with this world, you admit that we were made for another. 2 Corinthians 4, 12, 14, and 15, Paul says, So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. 
we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. Paul was willing to sacrifice for the gospel because it changed the eternal destinies of his brothers and sisters. Paul does not say that suffering is meaningless. He also doesn't say that suffering is inherently good. But he does say that God can turn suffering on its head. He exploits it for the benefit of ourselves, others, and his glory. Or in the words of Timothy Keller, God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. All right, so we don't want an overly optimistic view. We don't want an overly pessimistic view. Okay, suffering exists, but we have hope in Christ. So great, we can just get back to being happy and feeling positive all the time. Paul does not say you should always feel positive if you trust in Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul said, But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. Well, spoke what? To understand what he means, we need to understand a little bit about Jewish culture. Paul was a Pharisee. He was an expert in Jewish law and scriptures. And all Jewish men at that time were required to memorize the first five books, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. But Pharisees were required to memorize the whole Old Testament. And there was a practice that rabbis used or teachers of the law used in teaching their students. And that was a practice called remez. And a remez is a hint at a larger context. The students were expected to understand the broader passage that a rabbi was quoting. And sometimes they were even required to recite back the entire passage to them. So what psalmist is Paul referring to? He refers to Psalm 116.10. I believed in you, so I said, I am deeply troubled, Lord. Maybe not what you expected. But what is this faith the psalmist is referring to? Let me read a little bit more. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. How kind the Lord is, how good he is, so merciful, this God of ours. The Lord protects those of childlike faith. I was facing death and he saved me. Let my soul be at rest again, for the Lord has been good to me. He has saved me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and so I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. I believed in you, so I said, I am deeply troubled, Lord. In my anxiety, I cried out to you, these people are all liars. What can I offer to the Lord for all he has done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. Here we see the author's honest confession of negative emotions directed in a cry to God. 
because of his faith in God's faithful love, he pours his heart out. When we bring the truth of how we feel before God, when we cry out to him from the depths of our hearts, he answers our call. And in response, the psalmist lifts up the cup of salvation and offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, there's one more aspect of this ramez that is really the linchpin in all of this. Psalms 116 is part of a group of hymns called Egyptian Hallel, or praise, which is the root word of hallelujah. The Jewish people sung these hymns before and after the Passover celebration to celebrate liberation from being slaves in Egypt. And this is the very passage that Jesus sung with his disciples on the night of his betrayal. So let's pick up that story in Matthew 26. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed his head to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. This cup represented judgment and death. This cup was meant for us because Jesus drank our cup of suffering. The psalmist was able to say, I will lift the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. The very first sin was actually a false belief. It was a lie that Satan whispered into the ear of Adam and Eve. God doesn't really love you. You can't trust that he wants what's best for you. If you want to be happy, you have to take control. And so they did. They ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, and they decided to rely on themselves instead of believing God loved them. This original sin, this original lie is still with us. It dresses itself up, goes to church, and tries to infect us with self-righteousness, unkindness, loneliness, and hopelessness. It enslaves us like the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. God is a source of all light and life, and when we turn from him, we enter a path of darkness and death from which we cannot return. But... Many years after Eden, in a different garden, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, chose to lay aside his own will. Death wrapped its ropes around him. The terrors of the grave overtook him. He saw only trouble and sorrow, but he said, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. He endured the cross to crush the original lie, to bring us back to light and life. 
Hebrews 12.2 said, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? It was you. Jesus wanted to spend eternity with you so much that he was willing to stand in your place and drink your cup. When we experience suffering, we may not understand why. And we may never understand on this side of eternity. But when we look at the cross, we can no longer say it is because he doesn't love us. There's another woman I worked with who also found out that she was not going to get to watch her young children grow up. And when I entered the hospital unit that day, her nurse came and, found, came and found me. And I heard wailing from across the unit. And she said that she'd been wailing at the top of her lungs all day. And could I please go in and sit with her, do something? And I was like, yeah. And so I went in and sat as she just wailed. Why, why, why? And in a moment of silence, God brought this song to my mind that is based on that passage in Hebrews. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. And peace just came over the room and her cries were silent. And she opened her eyes and said, I don't know why, but I feel better. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. We will one day be with God in a new home where there will be no more death and no more sickness and no more tears and God's glory will outshine even the deepest shadow. Father, I know that my words will seem foolish to anyone whose eyes you have not opened. Father, I pray that you would make the light of creation shine in our hearts so that we could see your glory that is reflected in the face of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strange.
Would you pray with me? God, we welcome you into our suffering, our fears, and our insecurities, Father. All the frail parts of who we really are, all the areas in our lives where we need something so much greater than we are. Lord, we welcome you to come and sit with us, to speak to us to comfort us and to lead us. Would you take just a moment and in your own words, would you just welcome God into all those parts of your life, maybe for the first time, maybe today has reminded you of the areas in your life where we need to welcome God in, but would you take just a moment and in your own words, speak to God today, speak to Jesus. Lord, we thank you that today there are none in this room or that hear this video, Lord, that are beyond your grace. We've messed up too many times or gone too far to hear your words today that we are loved, we are welcomed to the family of God by the cross of Christ, by the gospel that redeems us. 
We thank you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.